So when I say email makes us less productive, I don't mean that the POP3 or SMTP protocol is somehow not productive. It's a great way to broadcast information or send files. It's much better than the fax machine. What's making us less productive is the hyperactive hive mind workflow that email enabled. It is literally making us dumber. It is making it very difficult for us to do serious thinking with our brains, and it is exhausting us. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can you imagine the world without email? Is it a better one? There are people on this planet with amazing powers. With the help of their computers, and CompuServe, they access an incredible number of powerful services without buying a lot of expensive software. Watch Back this. in 1993, I was one of those people with amazing powers. I'd just gotten my first CompuServe email account, one that I shared with my then-girlfriend, Belinda. Our first email address, 71672.1070 at CompuServe.com. To celebrate, I dashed off my very first electronic message to a friend with the subject line, the unbearable lightness of email. Well, 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 I wrote. At long last, I find myself in the much talked about cyberspace. It reminds me of Nevada, flat and quiet. But if cyberspace in 1993 was like Nevada, then it was like Nevada right before Vegas came online, before that flat, quiet landscape started pulsing and glowing with endless invitations to distraction. Towards the end of that first email, I added, I see marvelous procrastination potential in this here cyberland. I had no idea just how true that would be. You know that Joan Didion line, it's easy to see the beginnings of things and harder to see the ends? That's what email was like for me. Before it came into my life, I'd been a prolific writer of letters, exchanging hundreds of pages with friends. It was a beautiful thing. It was therapy. It was a shared journal that helped me understand my life. And I thought emails would just be a paperless version of that. I even jokingly referred to them as electromagnetic missives. But that all changed a year later when for the first time I heard this. You've got mail. It was Pavlovian. It was titillating. You've got mail. So began an obsessive compulsive relationship. As the volume of messages rapidly increased, my emails got shorter, more fragmented. I tried to keep up, but it was like an increasingly fast-paced game of ping pong played against dozens of opponents, real friends and online friends, colleagues and family, someone who just confused me with another Rufus Griscom. It was overwhelming, but it was the future. And isn't the future supposed to be overwhelming? At the time, I was a young editor at a publishing house, and I pitched my boss on getting email for everyone at the company. She said, we communicate with authors by phone. It works well. Why do we need email? I couldn't believe it. Why send faxes and circulate memos when you could communicate instantly? Looking back, though, I now see that my boss was right to be wary. Because as email played a bigger and bigger role in my professional and personal life, it started feeling less titillating and more treacherous. By 1997, I couldn't keep up anymore. All those newsletters I'd never read, friends I didn't have time for, Nigerian princes I couldn't help. I gave up trying to return every ping pong ball and gave in to the deluge. And now, here I am today with 
One sec, let me check. 600,518 unread emails in my inbox and counting. Now look, there's no denying that email can be super useful. Imagine what this year of remote work would have been like if we still relied on inter-office memos. But the problem with email, I've learned, isn't technological, it's cultural. Email has given rise to what my guest today, Cal Newport, calls the hyperactive hive mind. It's a workflow built on unstructured, unscheduled, unceasing conversations, all conducted via email. It's a to-do list you let everyone else in the world add to. If you have a white-collar job, you know exactly what Cal is talking about. Thanks to the hyperactive hive mind, you send and receive an average of 126 emails a day. You check your inbox every six minutes. You spend your nights and weekends writing, hey, circling back, or check again, or just a quick update, over and over and over again. It's eroding your focus, zapping your energy, killing your productivity, and there's nothing you can do about it. Or is there? Cal Newport, the productivity whiz who came up with deep work and digital minimalism, shows us the way out of this inbox hellhole in his timely new book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. A world without email, it sounds like utopia, perfect and unreachable. But Cal says that with bold changes, we can get there. To start, we've got to accept that it'll take more than unsubscribing to junk mail and adjusting our Slack notifications. We've got to think bigger. Cal says that if we truly want to reclaim our productivity, and for that matter, our sanity, then we have to eradicate the hyperactive hive mind once and for all. He's here to tell us how. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Cal Newport, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. Well, Cal, it's remarkable that we were able to schedule this without email. How did we pull that off? I, I assume we used some smoke signals or there was some process. I think the telegraph network was involved at some point, maybe got a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm teasing you here because I think I, I, heard, I heard from members of the team that we had attempted to use a third-party calendaring system, but it didn't work exactly. So we ended up, we ended up going back and forth with some email. Yeah, there's probably, I, I don't know exactly <laughs> how the how the scheduling went up, but let's let's think of it as like a tidy a tidy metaphor for the complexity of asynchronous digital collaboration. Well, and it is interesting. It's funny you mentioned you know telegraph systems and so on. Like as kids, I think we're all kind of fascinated by communication systems, right? Like folding up notes in school. I remember being fascinated by like Robin Hood's pulley systems and and uh, you know having clothing lines between houses so you could you know send notes, cups with strings. But you've really run with the fascination around communication technology and how we can improve it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating. I, I'm a computer scientist who works on the theory behind distributed systems and distributed communication networks. And so this is a world that I see through this abstract lens, through this theoretical lens. So that even when you throw me into a really practical setting, like an office and a bunch of people hunched over their laptops, 
I see the underlying abstract structures. What are the constructs here? What are the protocols? What are the tools? How do they fit into these bigger systems? So I see the world in an odd way, but it's a useful skill when it comes to trying to actually do some, some cultural critique. Absolutely. Let's start by talking a little bit about you and your journey, Cal. You're, you're a tenured computer science professor at Georgetown, the author of seven books, most recently Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and Now the World Without Email. You have a weekly podcast, all this at the tender age of 38. You've been a juggernaut of productivity throughout your life. You started a consulting business in high school. It seems that your productivity strategies are definitely working for the author. Has this always been a, an interest? Yeah, I got interested in it because of that business I started as a teenager. And we had to be very productive in any reasonable sense of the word because this was an era before laptops were widely used. This was an mm -hmm. era before cell phones, for sure. And we were in school all day. And yet we were still we were still running the business. So somehow we had to figure out how could we, as 16 and 17-year-olds, run a business, do 20, 30, $40,000 deals with companies and have very little time to do work and almost no accessibility. And so that, by necessity, got me experimenting with, well, how does work get done? How do you schedule it? How do you make sure the right things get done when they need to get done? How do you get rid of crucially unnecessary effort, right? There was no no margin for busy work, no, no margin for performative busyness back in my high school days. Once I had that mindset inculcated in me at a young age, it stuck with me throughout the other things I did in life as I went forward. And and that's actually ended up being a, a pretty useful perspective to have. And I think that's a great segue to big idea number one, that email makes us less productive and miserable. Email makes us less productive. Now, this may sound strange at first. If we go back and look at the history of email, we see that it spread very quickly during the early 1990s because it was a more productive way of implementing certain communication tasks. Email was more productive than a fax machine. It was more productive than voicemail. It was more productive than sending around paper memos in those folders with the little red thread ties. So what do I mean when I say it makes us less productive? Well, it wasn't those uses that caused the problem. It is what followed in the wake of email spread. As email moved from office to office, in its wake came as an unexpected side effect, a new way of collaborating. It's what I call the hyperactive hive mind workflow. Once we gave access to low friction digital communication to employees and organizations, we began to do most of our collaboration, most of our coordination, most of our communication in unscheduled ad hoc back and forth messaging. Everything that needed to be worked out, we could just rock and roll in our inbox. Now, there's a lot of advantages to the hyperactive hive mind workflow. It's fast, it's easy, it's convenient. If you know how to use email, you know how to work at our company. And so it was very popular. The downside, however, is that if this is how you are coordinating with most of the people you work with, there are going to be a ton of messages generated each day. And not only are there going to be a ton of messages generated each day, but they demand timely responses do, I need to check the inbox frequently. This was the natural consequence of the hyperactive hive mind workflow is that we all started checking our inboxes way more than we had ever checked communication channels before. One study I looked at shows that the average American knowledge worker is going to send and receive 126 emails a day. A big data set I looked at found that we were checking our inboxes once every six minutes on average. This is demanded 
by the hyperactive hive mind workflow because again, we have all of these different ongoing asynchronous back and forth ad hoc unscheduled communication threads going on and they have to be tended. The problem with this is every time we glance at that inbox that keep up with all these different back and forth conversations, our brain goes through a cognitive context shift. It shifts from the thing we were doing to try to change its context to whatever is relevant to these email messages. Switching your cognitive context is an expensive task. It's a non-trivial neurochemical cascade. You have to inhibit some networks. You have to amplify other networks. It takes time, but we don't give it time. We glance at the inbox because again, there's all these messages going back and forth that we have to keep up with. We initiate a context shift, but then halt it to rip our attention back to the main thing we were working on. So then we try to halt that shift and shift back to the cognitive context of the main thing we're working on. But before we can get completely back to the thing we're working on, we wrench that attention away back to the inbox to check it again, initiating a new context shift. And we do this repeatedly throughout the day. The cost of all this aborted context shifting is that we lose our ability to think clearly. We begin to feel a cognitive fatigue. That's why by the time you get to two or three o'clock in the afternoon, you sort of give up on hard work altogether and just give in to Slack. You just give in to your inbox, it also makes us anxious. So when I say email makes us less productive, I don't mean that the POP3 or SMTP protocol is somehow not productive. It's a great way to broadcast information or send files. It's much better than the fax machine. What's making us less productive is the hyperactive hive mind workflow that email enabled. It is literally making us dumber. It is making it very difficult for us to do serious thinking with our brains, and it is exhausting us. Wow. Listening to this, reading your book, my heart goes out to all knowledge workers, including myself. (laughs) We're checking our inboxes every six minutes. This is leaving us in a fog of context switching, confusion. We're stressed, stupid, miserable. When you share this message, you get a lot of hallelujahs. Do you think there's broad appreciation of the fact that we we have a problem? Yes. This is one of these rare, I would say, cultural afflictions where basically everyone's on the same page. I mean, normally when it comes to, Mm -hmm. let's say, an issue with a workforce that's unhappy about something, there's usually some sort of dialectical relationship here. Well, yeah, it's bad for you, but that makes life better for them. Mm -hmm. Bad for the employee is better for the boss. When it comes to the the impact of the hyperactive hive mind, it's bad for everybody. No one likes it. Employees don't like it. Bosses don't like it. The people who own the businesses don't like it. It makes people unhappy. There's high turnover. Things aren't getting done. So it's one of these rare afflictions of the modern workforce where everyone's on the same page. Yeah, this is no good and it's got to go. The only reason it hasn't right away is that, well, it's not that easy or obvious to make an immediate change. So why is it that this context switching is so taxing? What's happening in our brains when we try to quickly shift from one task to the next? I mean, the human brain in general is pretty sequential. Mm -hmm. It assumes it's going to be doing more or less one thing at a time, right? I'm working on this, now I'm working on that. This idea of quickly juggling many things, basically in parallel, is just not something that was present in nature as this hardware evolved. It's just not something that we've ever been able to do well. So it's a highly artificial situation, Hmm. a highly artificial information processing situation that we have thrown the modern digital age knowledge worker into. So multitasking is a myth, This is news, Cal, to my almost perfect wife who believes that she can multitask. I don't know if you have any experience, Cal, as a a relationship counselor, but I'd be grateful if you could adjudicate. Here's a clip from our conversation this morning. You see yourself as a good multitasker. What do you mean by that? How do you multitask? Well, 
I, I would imagine there's different definitions of multitasking. It probably depends on the task you're doing, what level of concentration is required. I would say, can I cook while having a phone conversation, while setting the table, while getting dressed? Yes, I can do all of those things. Can I read an intense article in the New York Times while trying to manage you know, a child melting down while trying to manage a delivery at the door. You know, there's, I think it really depends. I would, I would say it's, it's not a perfect sort of science here. But yes, I would say overall, I see myself as a, as a pretty good multitasker. And so you're saying that, that less challenging things like getting dressed or cooking or having a conversation with your husband, those things can be done <laughs> on parallel tracks while you're also like interacting with your phone, reading something. Yes, yes. I think it's I think it's really about the tasks that you're trying to accomplish and the level of concentration and focus that's needed. In my mind, I have made peace with the fact that Homo sapiens cannot multitask. We're not good <laughs> at it. We just have to we have to single task. And and would you say that that's just more broadly, just anything that they're doing, they cannot multitask? Well, I I mean I, I think anything that is more taxing than like driving a car you cannot do in parallel. And I would, I would submit that talking with your spouse is in the category of something that is more taxing than driving or cooking. Okay, this is brilliant. And I hope the world can hear that you claim you can multitask while driving on a highway with our family in the car going <laughs> 80 miles per hour in the HOV lane while you're trying to find a podcast on your phone, talking, while you're fussing I'm, I'm with the air. About, I'm saying that I can listen to Cal Newport's brilliant new book, a world without email, while safely driving a car. But I do think that the mental engagement required to have a fulfilling conversation with my almost perfect wife, that uh, is, is too taxing uh, to be done while listening to Cal Newport's brilliant new book. Interesting. If only that were the only thing you were doing while driving a car. All right, Cal, who's, who's right here? What do you think? Well, I think there's three quick relevant points. One, when it comes to multitasking, there, there's certainly activities we've known for a long time that use a sort of nearly automated neuromuscular circuitry that you can do in parallel with other activities. Walking is a great example. Uh, two, when it comes to driving. Okay, not that I'm keeping score, but I think he's agreeing with me here. It's interesting. It is true that a conversation, for example, in a car, especially a conversation with someone who is remote, so who's on the phone and not sharing the same context, this is known to be much more dangerous than, say, listening to a book or radio. Because you can quickly try to bring your attention back to uh, salient things happening around you. If you're listening to my book, you just tune it out because something's happening with the traffic up ahead of you. Or if there's someone in the car with you, they see that too in the conversation lulls. This is why conversations on cell phones are so dangerous in the car. The other mm -hmm. person is still making this cognitive demand. You, you, don't want, you can't tune them out, and then you, you are more distracted. But mm -hmm. I want to make a bigger point here, which is uh, let's put multitasking aside. The cost of context switching has a relatively long refractory period, right? So when you change your context from one thing to another, you initiate a switching process that has a relatively long half-life. So people who think they are not multitasking say, okay, I'm just doing one thing at a time. What they often overlook is the cost of the quick checks. They say, look, of course, I'm quick checking my phone because there's a couple text conversations going on that I need to keep up with while I'm also talking with you or while I'm also working on something. And I'm not doing it at the same time. I'm not holding the phone next to you while I talk to you. But those quick checks, if you're doing them every five or six minutes, every time you check, you initiate this context shift. 
Before that can finish, you go back to the conversation. Before you can get all the way back to the conversation, you go back to a quick check, and you have a similar cost that you would have to doing literal multitasking. And I think it's this pseudo-multitasking, this single-tasking riddled with quick checks that causes the most problems because we say, well, I'm not literally doing these things at the same time, and we don't realize that there is a cost to that context switch that can carry out 5, 10, 15 minutes beyond the switch being initiated. And that's where we really get into trouble. When he says getting into trouble, I think he means my wife is getting into trouble, but he's too polite to say it. And if we're we're checking our email every six minutes and it takes as many as 10 minutes to fully recover and make that transition, then we're kind of never in that fully focused mindset. We're we're quite literally dumbing ourselves down to a non-trivial extent. And and you say that, that it's making us miserable. Is this measurable? Yeah, we can measure this and have measured it. There's there's quite a few studies that show, for example, at a survey level, increased use of information communication technologies correlate with less happiness. You can look at it the other way. You can go into companies and reduce the amount of availability required on email and see that happiness goes up. You can get physiological. So we can put heart rate monitors on people. We can put thermal cameras to measure stress responses and correlate these readings with people's usage of email inboxes and just watch stress rise when they're inbox uh, and go down when they leave. But we don't even really have to directly measure. I just ran a, a survey, a couple thousand people, my readers just asking about email. And it is just a consistent self-described negativity. This is stressful. I feel like a slave to my inbox. It's anxiety provoking. I mean, in some sense, we don't need to, we're not teasing out a careful, subtle epidemiological signal here. People will just directly tell you, yeah, this stuff makes me unhappy. And yet we've we've started to conflate email communication with doing actual work. And of course, I mean, perhaps sometimes, you know, we are doing actual work, writing certain more important and comprehensive emails, but so much of it, you talk about like obligation hot potato, which I think is a wonderful sequence of words. That's something that many of us have experienced, this kind of tendency of people to just sort of quickly ask a question to kind of <laughs> just just get, you know, ricochet it off of your desk onto somebody else's. And and so there's an escalation that happens uh, collectively, that, that like the hive mind becomes more and more frenetic. Well, when you push the hive mind workflow to its extreme, you end up in these type of situations where obligation hot potato becomes the default behavior. There's just so much stuff in your psychic plate of responsibilities that now you're just trying to clear off that plate who cares about effectiveness? Who cares about accomplishing things? Who cares about the objectives? Now it's just thoughts, question marks. Why? Because that thing is temporarily off your plate. Now they're going to bounce it right back, but you get an hour where that's not on your plate. And at that point, your business has just evolved into uh, a fraction of its potential. It's like being in a car factory where the lights have been shut off and no one can see anything. And we're just sort of throwing parts around. Like basically nothing's getting done anymore. But a key point to make here on the other end of this argument is that when it comes to thinking about solutions, I think sometimes people inaccurately think about, well, there's my work, and then I'm spending time on email. So what we need to do Mm -hmm. is just not spend much time on email so that I can get my work done. And one of the big important observations about the hyperactive hive mind is that if that is the implicit way that your company collaborates, then responding to knocking those ping pong balls across the virtual ping pong net, all those checks, all those back and forth, these asynchronous ongoing conversations, that is how work is happening. It can't be separated, which means you're never going to be able to solve this problem. 
you're never going to be able to solve this problem by just changing your interactions or habits with the inbox. So I, I, one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is show that it's this workflow that the focus is on. This is the issue, that these ongoing back and forth, unscheduled, asynchronous conversation threads is the main way we're collaborating. That is the villain here, that deployment of the tool. Mm-hmm. Yep, interesting. Well, you make the case that despite 25 years of extraordinary tech innovation and in how we communicate, but you think of these last 25 years, we have you know, the emergence of email, all these extraordinary new software tools, smartphones, right? I mean, extraordinary innovation. But during this time, productivity has actually gone sideways. And so how do you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the big paradox in countrywide economic metrics is why is non-industrial productivity not exploding as we invest so many hundreds of billions of dollars into these information and computation innovations? And, and I think it all has to do with the fact that when we switch to cognitive work, so the primary instrument of value creation is a human brain, it takes an information process, it produces new information that has more value. We created tools, maybe this was like with an industrial mindset that reduced friction and sped things up. That is not necessarily what you want to get the most out of a brain. And so we created these tools that made it quicker to get information, easier to send information, quicker to do tasks, administrative tasks, logistical tasks. We could do things on a general purpose PC that was on our desk. All of this innovation didn't really get at the core thing that mattered in knowledge work is how do you best set up a brain to take in information from other brains and produce something with value. And I think what we got was a countervailing force where basically as we increase, let's say, the hyperactive hive mind because of tools like email, as we decrease administrative support because of the arrival of the front office personal computer, it made brains less effective because of all the context shifting. So we then added off the books hours in the work. Well, start early, work at night, work after your kids go to bed, work on the weekends. This new technology makes that possible. That compensated for the lost productivity and we ended up basically stagnated. That's why people are so miserable, is that like we, we're having to work a lot more, literally apply effort for much more hours than we used to just to try to get the same amount of final output produced. And that's why I think we have this frustration. We intuit this frustration that what we're doing here in this world of knowledge work, what we're doing here can't be right. That is an extraordinary assertion. Thanks to email, we're working longer hours, we're taking more work home with us, and we're getting less done. So you've got to ask, why are we doing this to ourselves? Cal has the answer coming up after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. Cal Newport's first big idea is that email is making us dumb, miserable, and exhausted. Why the heck did we let that happen? Well, in his second big idea, he says part of the problem is that we don't control email, email controls us. Email has a mind of its own. 
So here's the question. If the hyperactive hive mind is making us very unproductive because of all this context switching, if it's making us miserable because our human brain can't really handle well piling messages that we're ignoring, why do we decide to work this way? Well, as best as I can tell, having looked at this problem for a while and researched this problem for a while, no one actually decided that this was a good idea. The hyperactive hive mind emerged more or less spontaneously once email was present. It was just a side effect of the natural dynamics between humans and this tool and the way that offices operate, and it was just an emergent side effect. No one intended it. We can actually see this in action. One of the stories I tell in my book was of IBM in the late 1980s. IBM decided, let's build an email server, right? This was the 80s before there was a lot of off-the-shelf solutions, but it was IBM. They said, we'll program our own. We know what we're doing. Let's build an internal email server. Now, one of the engineers involved in this project who I interviewed for my book was tasked with doing a survey of all the communication in the office, the phone calls, the memos, that try to figure out how much are people communicating. And they said, let's be really conservative. Let's assume in the worst case that every single bit of communication that happens right now is going to be shifted to email once email is here because email, as I talked about, is a more efficient way to do a lot of this type of existing communication. So they carefully provisioned a mainframe to be able to easily handle all of the communication that happened in their office. They turn on the mainframe, they give everyone email clients. Within a few days, the machine melts down. People began communicating a factor of five to six times more than they ever had before within days of email being introduced. No one from the IBM C-suite sent out an all-hands memo that said, great news, everyone, we need to communicate way more. Being able to communicate more, more messaging, this is going to be the key to productivity. It was just a natural reaction to this tool being here. It's low friction. This hyperactive hive mind way of coordinating is very natural. It's how we coordinate with small groups of people historically. This allowed us to do that for all sorts of groups. It's very convenient in the moment. So this way of working just sort of emerged. Now, I think this is important because when we recognize that this is not intentional, it's just a side effect of the tool being around, then we could be much more critical. Okay, if this was random, doesn't mean it's bad, but it doesn't mean it's good. It means we should really examine it. And when we examine it, we see, wait, it makes us really unproductive and it makes us miserable. Maybe it's time to look for better ways of collaborating in our digital age. The first time I, I picked up uh, your book, Cal, I thought, oh, well, we we kind of know this, right? That you know, that, that email is not as efficient and there are better workflows we can put in place. But this exploration of the historical context and the scale of this phenomenon is just astonishing. We, I think there are more today more than a billion knowledge workers. And they all started suddenly, within, within the space of a few years, working in this radically new and different way. And no one stopped to, <laughs> to ask the question, like, does this make sense? Well, and one of the reasons why we didn't stop to ask, does this make sense, is because we weren't in the habit of asking that question about almost anything. And I, this was one of the other interesting threads I started to pull on as I, as I worked on the book, is that knowledge work, sort of unique among other types of industries, has this autonomy principle. It is up to the worker to figure out how to organize their work. If you want to be productive, that's a personal thing. We did not think from the organizational level, well, how do we want to organize our work? Where does the information come in? When do we collaborate about this? How do you get access to the information? Under what framework do we make decisions? For the most part, 
we were in the habit of knowledge work is management by objectives, leave the details of how you get your work done to individuals. In that context of extreme autonomy, that's where the high find was able to both emerge and also take root. Once you have everyone in an organization operating by the hyperactive hive mind, there's nothing that no one person can do. It's very difficult for one person to step out of that type of behavior because you suddenly are making other people's lives harder, which makes them less positively inclined towards you and you have negative repercussions. So everyone is stuck in this digital tragedy of the commons that once we're doing the hive mind, no one by themselves can easily leave it. The IBM case study that you just described is so extraordinary because it captures in amber the moment of this change. And you talk with Adrian Stone, who did the research about the volume of communications at IBM headquarters, and he says, pre-email, simple communication was largely person-to-person, and then after email, we have these large back-and-forth threads, including lots and lots of people. And the two critical changes are the volume goes up and the CCs go way up. And then Adrian says, I think in your conversation, Thus, in a mere week or so, was gained and blown the potential productivity gain of email. In a single week, that's how fast this happens. Yeah, and no one stopped to say, wait a second. But but think about our reaction. I mean, let's go back to the 90s. Let's go back to the early 2000s. So really, this spread in the 90s, and you begin to see the first strong signals of this hyperactive pipeline overload by the early 2000s, so almost immediately. Think about our cultural reaction to this. We introduced the term crackberry. Remember this? Sure. Why suddenly are these political operatives and economic consultants and bankers, why are they on their BlackBerry all the time? Oh, they are addicted to the phone. Like they have this personal failing where they built up an addiction to the device. No one even thought to ask, well, wait, maybe something fundamentally changed about how people collaborate at these banks or at these political groups. Maybe we're suddenly communicating way more than normal. And that's why you have to constantly check these things because otherwise you can't keep up. This is really different than what we used to do. Is it better? We never asked that. We immediately jumped to ascribing this to personal failures. Like, oh, that's so unusual that you're addicted to using your phone, where in reality what had happened is a fundamental phase change in how collaboration actually occurred and it was entirely emergent. Well, you know, it's, 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 in, in 1994, I was just out of college and I was a young editor at a small book publishing house and I'd just gotten my first CompuServe account. And I, I remember making the case to the management of the small publishing house I worked at that we should really get email. You know, this is the next thing. And the, the owners, you know, the, said, no, we don't need it. And, and I thought, they're a bunch of Luddites. Like, what are they thinking? They're just, and I look back on it, I think, you know, they were actually right. Like, we were having phone conversations with the authors of, of whose books we were publishing. We, actually, our systems worked quite well. But you do allow that email did solve a problem in the sense that, you know, the fax machine was not a perfect technological solution. Well, yeah, this is why it spread so fast. Right. I mean, the, the original reason why email spread so fast in the 90s was for these pragmatic improvements to existing communication channels. And the three I point to is fax machines, voicemails, and interoffice memos. It was just unambiguously superior to those modes of communication. That's why it spread. The hyperactive hide mind came a little bit later. It was a side effect of the tool being there. Yeah. But you can separate these two things. I think separating these two things really helps us understand our conflicted relationship with these tools. Like, imagine a counterfactual universe like in Back to the Future 2, 
you know, Biff Tannen comes back, but not with the sports almanac, but with a copy of uh, a copy of a world without email and brings it back to 1994. Right. So now you see the writing on the wall. Imagine if this publishing house said, oh, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to adopt email, but we're going to actually be very specific about how we use it. And in fact, we're not really going to give email addresses to people. But what we're going to do is we're going to replace specific processes with this technology. So where we would normally fax, we now have an email address for that, where we would normally send you a manuscript that was written up. We're now going to attach a document. Right. But we're not going to, let's say, give an email address to every individual that you use for any purpose. You probably would have ended up net net way more productive than you were either before or after email came because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you get the productivity benefits of no messengers, no fax machines, no memos. But then you counteract that with the productivity losses of the hive mind. So it's really about how do we keep those former advantages while avoiding the latter and understanding that they are separate. I think unlocks so much understanding in people because otherwise when it's all mixed together, it's really hard to get past. I don't want to type in a voicemail code anymore and then just leave the conversation at that as you turn back to answer email for the 77th time that day. Yeah. The, the unintended consequences are so hard to see at the beginning of these, of these technology transformations, aren't they? Um, Perhaps my favorite section of the book is your digression on technological determinism. And What's clear when, when, when we walk through this history of, of the emergence of email is that no one is in control, right? I mean, this new technology emerged, provided near-term advantages, spread rapidly, completely changed how hundreds and hundreds of millions of people behave during the day. And the crazy part is not only did no one make a decision that this was a better way to work, it took 20 years for us to even, or at least a decade, to find the time to assess whether this new technology was good for us, right? So I think there's a broader revelation here, which is we are not in control of the way that emerging technologies are impacting our behaviors. You tell the story, which I was new to me, about the technology of the stirrup. <laughs> so like the stirrup you, know, you use when you ride a horse uh, in the medieval era and the impact that had. Do you want to share that story? Well, this is Lynn White Jr. from the, the 1950s, and he had this book that is now looked at as a classic in technological determinism, even though some of the actual historical research here has then since been debated, as historians love to send me emails about. I think it's still a great example of what technological determinism looks at. And basically, he was tagging the rise of feudalism in medieval Europe to the adoption of the horse stirrup. And he makes a pretty compelling case of going through the archaeological and then historical record. And he makes a pretty compelling case that basically what happened is the horse stirrup arrives in Europe. This is like roughly around the year 800 AD. This is roughly around the time of Charlemagne. The horse stirrup arrives from the Asian steppes where this has been innovated because there's uh, horse-based cultures out there. And it came for innocent, like it made it easier to ride horses, right? What it enabled once it arrived though is like, oh, with a horse stirrup, if I'm a armed, uh, like a knight, right, an armored knight, and I have a lance, I can now brace myself into stirrup, put the put the lance under my arms, and now I actually have the entire momentum of the horse behind the lance. It was a like a hugely unfair advantage if you could have mounted warriors with stirrups. Now, the problem is mounted warriors are expensive to maintain because they need horses, and the horses need a lot of land. And it triggered, in Lynn White Jr.'s uh, analysis, a complete restructuring of the actual economic order that confisc- uh, confiscated all this land from the church and then gave it out to vassals. All of this, the rise of feudalism, was this was the only way to actually support 
stir up enabled armored warriors, which they had to do because once the technology existed, they weren't going to beat the Franks. Anyways, you put this all together. The horse stirrup comes here because it makes it easier to ride a horse. 50 years later, you have, you know, uh, feudal uh, knights. <laughs> the entire way the economic system of medieval Europe operated had changed. Well, we'll let the historians duke it out over, <laughs> over, over whether that was an accurate description. But it is fascinating that clearly, like the inventor of the stirrup, is not thinking, <clears throat> "Oh, here, let's 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 seed feudalism," and much much in the same way that the early, uh, you know, the Henry Ford and others did weren't thinking about the incredible unintended consequences that automobiles would have. Right, that it would change the way. Um, people live the way we built, you know, uh, suburbs and edge cities and would would potentially erode community in, in, in many ways, you know, contribute to, to uh, global warming. But getting back to the, the, the emergence of uh, the advent of email, you talk about um, evolutionary reasons for the preference for frequent short bursts of communication that could be uh, perceived to be hardwired into us from our hunter-gatherer times. Well, it's just how we communicate naturally, right? I mean, put a small group of people doing anything in the same room, how you communicate is the hyperactive hive mind, uh, asynchronous, ad hoc, unscheduled messaging. And, and I mean, yeah. and how else would you do it, right? I mean, we're building sure. a barn, you know, like Rufus over here, can you hand that to me? I'll watch out for that. Like, that's just how humans communicate, right? Yeah. Email made it possible to scale that up. The many, many humans working on many, many things. The problem is it doesn't scale. But the fact that what we are scaling is something that we are incredibly used to and it feels very natural really helps explain when we have this autonomy trap where it says, hey, just figure out how you want to work yourself. What are we going to fall back on? The thing that is the most natural, the thing that is ingrained, the, the way that we would interact normally, right? I mean, of course, that's what we're going to fall back on to. Actually, the artificial thing here, the the non-instinctual thing here is how do we actually structure a, an organization of 50, 100, 2,000 people to work together? That's an incredibly unnatural problem that we're ill-suited from evolution to figure out, and it takes a lot of intentional thinking to solve. And so th this adds a fascinating layer of complexity to the technological determinism story, because on the one hand, we have these emergent tech innovations that no one's in control of. And on the other hand, those tech innovations are interacting with these human instincts, some of them like vestigial human instincts, many of which we don't fully understand, right? And so, and so it really is this kind of like live experiment. And, you know, there's a, an extraordinary example in your book is the like button on Facebook. I did not know this history of the like button, you know, that it was created for a reason other than what I thought. Do you, you want to share that? Yeah, it's somewhat accidental, its ascendancy to social media. The, the original reason the like button was invented is because engineers thought it was suboptimal. This is a very engineering type of thing to think. They thought it was suboptimal that when someone would post a picture on Facebook, there would be so many similar comments. Great exclamation point. Okay, congrats, right? Like you would post a photo of, you know, look, here, here I am getting my diploma and everyone would just write these one word things. Like that's a great way to go, whatever. And the engineers thought, and I think this is a completely reasonable assessment, what a waste, right? If 50 of these comments are meaning it's just okay, great, or whatever, that's going to swamp out the more meaningful, like the longer comments. Like, hey, I saw you, blah, blah, blah. So like, oh, we'll introduce this like button. So if you just want to do a, 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 a small approval comment, just click the like button and we'll just like, we'll grab that in a counter. That will preserve the actual written comments for more substantive comments. So it was just a pure engineering optimization that you know geeks like me would think this just seems better. What they didn't understand though 
was that getting that counter to go up, that like, had become an intermittently reinforcement social approval indicator. And that played with human psychology in a completely unexpected way. And what's the, what's the price of that? When now you're actually going to see intermittently increasing, sometimes a lot, sometimes not at all, social approval indicators, well, you're going to hit the icon on your phone to check your Facebook post again and again and again and again. It became a slot machine. It's, it's so wild. that we're, we're doing these experiments on human psychology at a scale of hundreds of millions of people, <laughs> you know, and kind of watching in real time. I mean, the button's created to make the comment section higher quality, pithier, which is a noble cause. And it turns out we have this massive human craving for affirmation. And this turns us into a bunch of distracted, salivating monkeys. But yeah, the, what, it is an interesting question as to what, ex, to what extent. I mean, people may overestimate the cynicism of the people running these tech companies in the sense that some of this has just happened upon, as you say. But on the other hand, it is critical that, that these companies take ownership of the consequences. Yeah, but I, just to make a, a quick point here, this, this complicates the issue because I've, I've written books about social media and phones, and I've obviously written books about email. And it's an interesting comparison because they feel very similar. We end up in a place with our phones that seem similar to where we ended up with email. We check it too much. But the underlying causes are really different, right? Because we look at the, the, the social media story, and, and though there's these initial adventures and technological determinism, like the like button that showed the potential, they then begin, as you, you know, hinted, much more systematically engineering these tools. We want people to yeah. use it more. We want to press more buttons. There's actually no incentive like that on email, right? Outlook yeah. does not make more money if you send 50 emails versus 20 emails. But we ended up in kind of a similar place, which I think just underscores how powerful just emergent behaviors can be. In the world of email, no one was trying to get us to check email all the time. And yet we ended up in kind of the same place with our work communication that we ended up in our world of personal-facing digital communication where we had billions of dollars being spent to get us to do that. So it's, I, I think that comparison is great because it shows how powerful some of these forces can be. You don't need an evil actor. You don't mm -hmm. need a Bond villain in a hollowed-out volcano to get us to check email 126 times a day. It's really powerful, these, these unpredictable, complex, techno-social dynamics. Well, that leads us to the question, what can we do about it? Uh, and you say that the solutions are already emerging. We can do better. This brings us to big idea number three, a world without email is inevitable. Now, people often ask, with this book, am I trying to convince the world to change? And I say, no, I'm not at all. The world is going to change. I'm just trying to give people a heads up. The great late management theorist, Peter Drucker, writing it near the end of his life in 1999, looked back at the industrial sector and he said, between the year 1900 and 1999, this sector grew by 50 times. This growth was so astounding that it generated the wealth on which the entire modern developed world was subsequently built. And they did it by getting very serious about the question of what's the best way to do what we do? Right? The way they were building cars in 1895 looked very different than the way they were building cars in 1925, which looks very different than the way that Elon Musk builds Teslas in 2025. The industrial sector kept asking, what's the best way to do things? Drucker then went on to say, okay, where I stand now in 1999, knowledge work is where industrial work was in 1900. We haven't even really got it started asking the question of what's the best way to do things. This current moment of digital enhanced knowledge work, we basically just came up with the first natural convenient way we could think about how to work in an age of networks, which was the hyperactive hive mind. Well, we can all have an email address or a Slack channel. We could just rock and roll. And we've been rolling with it. And we haven't been critical. And we haven't been asking, is this working? Is there something better to do? We just like that it's simple. We like that it's convenient. 
But the history of the intersection of technology and commerce tells us that we often start with what's simple and what's convenient, but inevitably what's more effective will win out. We are still very early in this age of digitally enhanced knowledge work. There is so much growth on the table. Peter Drucker's 50X growth is sitting here latent. There is no way that we're not going to go after it. And going after it means moving past the hive mind to things that maybe are hard to figure out and have more upfront costs and are inconvenient, but it's going to make us much more effective, lower worker burnout, lower turnover, way higher quality results produced by all these human brains that we employ in the knowledge sector. So a world without email, by which I mean, of course, a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow, oh, it's coming. There's too many economic pressures for it not. The only question is, are you going to be out in front of this trend and reap those benefits, or are you going to be trailing behind it? So as we think about solutions, a lot of people are making incremental reforms like email-free Fridays or processes like Inbox Zero. You think we need to do something much more radical. Is that right? The, the big issue I think we have is looking at the inbox instead of the underlying processes that are filling the inbox. And that's the key distinction that unlocks a lot of progress. So we're trying to solve this problem right now by improving our inbox habits and improving the etiquette and norms surrounding how we email. That's never going to get us that far. We actually have to go and say, what are the underlying processes, the things that we do again and again in our team or in our company or in my life as an entrepreneur? What are the things I do again and again that produce value? Okay, what's our system rules and guides for how we actually do this work? Where's the information come from? How do we share information? How do we communicate to make decisions? How do we move this from one step to the next? We actually have to go in and put in explicit alternatives to just we'll figure it out on the fly with email and with Slack. And I think the right analogy here is the rise of the assembly line. What we're trying to do right now by just saying I have better norms, or I'm going to batch my emails, that's like going back to a pre-assembly line car factory where they're still putting chassis up on sawhorses and we just have a team of craftsmen sit around it and build it and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you guys better shoes so you can move quicker when you go over to get, you know, supplies from the supply thing. And we, and we got a slightly heavier hammer so you're going to be able to knock these pieces in a little bit faster. That's all just scratching at the surface. The, the real change that had to happen said, well, we shouldn't have craftsmen sitting around a chassis on sawhorses. We should move the chassis on a assembly line and have people in place building things. We need that type of process, underlying process innovation. That's what's going to solve it, not the incremental changes to how we interact with the messages that are already in that inbox. You describe how, I think I think there was a single part of the Model T or whatever the, the Ford model that was they were working on that they experimented with doing it in this new in this new fashion. It was just some small piece of the car. And then they clocked that it was like done in, you know, 20 or 30% of the time, right? And, and then they started applying it incrementally to more and more pieces of the building of the car process until eventually the whole chassis is on a conveyor belt, right? Is it, do you think that we're looking at a similar process with how we work? Yeah, I think the right way to think about what we do in that same type of conceptual framework is to break down our work in the processes, which is just my term for the things, again, that we do again and again. Like, well, we produce podcast episodes again and again. We interact with clients. We, you know, whatever, right? You, you, what are the things we do again and again? Those are the equivalent in this analogy. Those are the equivalent to the different parts of the car that you had to build to assemble the Model mm-hmm. T. So maybe mm-hmm. the way that we arrange meetings with our clients or something like this is like the constructing the Magneto for the Model T. 
Right, that was it. That yeah, was it, right? And and just as okay, so they started working with piece by piece. Like we, okay, the Magneto. What they did there is they had this workbench with three people and the parts on a shelf underneath the workbench, and they passed it from person to person, and they realized they could build it much much faster that way. Um, the equivalent here would be taking an individual process in our knowledge work team and saying, okay, let's put an alternative implementation for just this process, an alternative to the hyperactive hive mind. And the thing that we're trying to optimize here is a little bit different than in the car analogy. In the car world, it's time. Mm-hmm. How many man mm-hmm. hours are required to produce the Magneto? They eventually got the whole Model T construction down from 12 and a half man hours to 90 minutes, right? It's not time that we're trying to optimize here because of the, the dynamics of the brain. What we're trying to optimize, I think the best proxy for reducing context switching is unscheduled messaging. How can we speed up that? How can we implement this thing in a way that minimizes the amount of unscheduled messages that are going to arrive that I'm going to have to notice and respond to? That is the equivalent in the knowledge work of time. So maybe in this example, our Magneto is setting up meetings. A meeting scheduling software tool like Calendly comes in and, oh, now we can set this up with one message with no unscheduled messaging going back and forth. Okay, that's the equivalent of figuring out the the smarter table for the Magneto. So I think that's how this is going to happen. Process by process, we put in an alternative to the hive mind, focusing again on unscheduled messages as the best proxy metric of what we want to reduce. As we look at these individual examples, like with with Calendly and with, and of course, there are various different different solutions for for scheduling, which seem to make a lot of sense. But but I have heard people say, "Gosh, it feels like the the work of scheduling is being pushed onto me, the recipient." <laughs> you know <laughs> that it's a little bit. It feels like a little bit of obligation, hot potato. Have you heard that criticism of the scheduling systems? Yeah, I mean that's just social engineering, right? But I mean, even right. a, I think there's a way to present it, which yeah. is. I listed all of my available times here because so that you can find one that works best for you because I know your schedule is tight. But honestly, even if you said, I'm going to take my calendar and I'm going to take five minutes to manually copy into this email 20 different times that I'm free, you know, no scheduling tools involved, right? So, so that you're completely switch, making it very clear that you're doing the work. Like, okay, you know, I have listed 20 times here because I know you're really busy and you can just email back the one that works best. I'll, I'll do the work for you. Even that, you're adding all this extra work. Like you could have just said, hey, when do you want to meet? 10 seconds, you shut off the email, right? But that's going to create a lot of unscheduled back and forth messaging. Even spending five minutes to list 20 things, it seems really laborious. You're still way, way better off because again, the metric here, the thing we care about is not time. It's the context shifts. And context shifts are initiated by unscheduled messages. And just to make this concrete, just this this concrete example, let's say in the moment you say, okay, it's going to be much quicker to just send you a message to say, hey, do you want to meet? Because in the moment, you've spent 10 seconds and it's off your plate. Okay. But let's say this is going to eventually create 10 back and forth messages to actually schedule because they're going to say, I don't know, how about next week? And you'll say, yeah, the week that week's not good. What about Tuesday? And they're going to say, well, maybe Monday's better. So let's say it creates 10 messages, five of which you have to receive. Now, because you're trying to schedule this thing relatively quickly, if you spend a week to finish this conversation, it defeats the purpose, right? Because you're trying to schedule something. You now need to actually check your inbox pretty frequently as you're waiting for each of these five messages that are inbound to you. So let's say conservatively 10 inbox checks per messages. That innocent decision to just say, do you want to meet next week has now generated 50 inbox checks in the next, let's say, 48-hour period, each of which that's going to create a five to 10-minute period Mm. in which you are uh, cognitively reduced, you're fatigued, that you're not able to get as much work done. And suddenly you say, oh, man, it would be a huge bargain to have instead spent five minutes up front to list every single time I'm available or to get you on the phone or this or that. Because, yeah, that five minutes, the cost of that five minutes in the moment is dwarfed by the cost of 50 
concentration interrupting context shifts over the next 48 hours. So once you realize what it is you're trying to actually optimize, it really changes the way you think about optimizations. Just that description of the 50 context, <laughs> context shifts to, uh, to schedule a meeting is, is making me nostalgic for the old-fashioned phone call, uh, unsolicited phone call. You know, what, what, what's extraordinary about the emergence of the assembly line and, and its parallel to some of these solutions is that, as you point out, it's really hard initially. Though the assembly line re- may have resulted in like a 10x increase in efficiency, it was initially plagued with challenges, extremely difficult to execute, and maybe that explains why it took so long. And, and, and would you say that also applies to what we're trying to do here? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important takeaways from that analogy is that it's a pain, a massive pain to shift to the assembly line. So imagine now you're at the factory there, you're at Highland Park outside of Detroit, you're in the Ford factory, and Ford comes in, it's like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Now, you're not going to sit around and build things the way that we've always built things throughout the history of craft manufacturing. We're going to have this chain on this winch, and it's going to pull this thing by, and, and, and well, we have to drill these holes in the engine block here really fast. So we've invented a new piece of equipment that breaks all the time, that can drill 12 holes simultaneously, but we need that because we can't slow things down here. Oh, we had to hire by the way, we had to hire a ton more overseers and managers just to, and engineers just to keep this thing up and running. So our expenses just shot up, right? If you were an investor in this company, if you're an employee of this company, you would say, this is insanity. It's so much yeah, easier, more yeah. convenient and natural to sit around the chassis. And yet by the early 1920s, Ford was the largest company in the world. You referenced Peter Drucker's 50X growth. Do you really think that, the, that, that we're looking at that dramatic of a potential improvement in productivity if we can make these changes? I do. I mean, I think it's so dramatic that we should be worried about it, right? So for example, once you start thinking these ways, a problem that emerges is we thought that skilled creative workers are saved from, let's think about automation or AI, right? Because what they do is never easily going to be replicated by automation or AI. However, once you know about the inefficiencies of the hive mind, you realize, well, yeah, but we have these human brains doing this unautomatable work, right? But they're doing it at a fraction of those brains' capacities because we're making them check an inbox every six minutes. What happens when those brains no longer have to check an inbox every six minutes? Well, the same amount of work can be produced by many fewer brains. And so, like, that's an issue that I don't think we're thinking about enough, right? I mean, you can, uh, you can, you can get a lot more done when you don't put this artificial governor on your brain, but that's either going to lead to, in the optimistic scenario— this huge expansion like happened in the industrial sector of the knowledge sector. In other words, like we're going to open up more and more products, more and more services, more and more innovation. We're going to basically put that new cognitive resource to work, which is what I'm hoping will happen. But the the other thing that could happen is that organizations say, great, we can hire half our workforce and still make get the same amount of work done and therefore double our profit. And there's a lot less work for skilled knowledge workers. So I mean, in other words, what I'm trying to say here, I'm, I'm not great at prognosticating economic mm. futures. I'm not a future work person. But just that option being on the table now underscores the degree to how dramatic potentially these productivity gains could be. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Cal's going to share some practical steps you can take to free yourself from the tyranny of the hyperactive hive mind. We'll be right back. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, 
HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to The Next Big Idea. So Cal's first big idea is that email is making us miserable, in part because email has a mind of its own. Something's got to change, which is why he thinks a future without email is inevitable. But it probably doesn't feel that way if you're a gig worker or you're employed by an organization that's still all about the hive mind. So I asked Cal to share some tips that anyone can take to escape the misery of email overload. So if you're an individual, like you work for yourself or you're in a company that is not on board with this type of thinking, I suggest you need to take this process-oriented mindset. So list out, here are all the different processes I'm involved with on a regular basis. And then even as an individual, you can go process by process and ask the question, given just what I can control, how can I adjust how I execute this process that minimizes unscheduled messages? There is a ton you can do without having to get buy-in from anyone else. And some of this stuff is just internal and local. Uh, the way that you know certain messages come in, you put them on a Trello board into a particular column that you check on at a certain time and then all in one big batch, you deal with it, right? Like, so some of this stuff is entirely internal. Some is software tools. So now you're using scheduling software. Hey, here's all my times. Just choose the one that works best for you. I know you're busy, so I gave you all my times here, right? That's you innovating a process to try to minimize unscheduled messages. And sometimes what you can do is just informally recruit people into one of these processes. Just don't call it that, right? So Mm -hmm. you send an email to someone, you're like, okay, we got to get this report out. Uh, Here's what I suggest we do. You know, uh, I will work on this and get a draft together by Monday at the end of business. It'll be in this shared Dropbox folder. Then it's all on you to do your edits. By the way, I have office hours. I'll be in the Zoom room from at noon to one on Tuesday. So if you have any questions, come grab me there. I'll be there for sure. Um, Okay. And then when you're done, move it to that shared Dropbox file folder. Oh, and I've CC'd the designer. Hey, designer Bob, into business Tuesday, whatever's in that folder, you can take that and do the production design and launch it, right? I mean, you're just kind of explaining stuff in an email. Here's how I think we should do it. And your, your friend and Bob are like, great, I'm glad there's a plan. I don't want to think about it. But what you've secretly just done there is recruited them into a process designed to minimize unscheduled messaging. This this report is now going to get created with zero unscheduled messages, and there's a huge win there. So again, even without having to get explicit buy-in from other people about moving past the hyperactive hive mind, just focusing on what you can control can have a huge impact. And and how do you feel, Cal, about, about meetings? Right, I mean, clearly... There are way too many meetings in large corporations. I mean, I, I was astonished by a statistic in the book that something like your average person, executive in a corporation spends something like five hours a day in meetings or something remarkable. Um, but um, at the same time, it is possible to have too few meetings and, and to lose connection as a team and lose some of the efficiency of synchronous communication. What, what, what do you think is the sweet spot? Yeah, it's an interesting issue because we have two things that are true at the same time. One, synchronous communication is significantly more effective for reaching decisions or learning something or having any sort of interactive interaction than asynchronous communication. Two, we have way too many meetings. Like both of these things are true at the same time. Well, let's look at the cause of too many meetings. Well, a big cause of too many meetings is what I call meetings as a proxy for productivity, right? So here's what happens. Something drops onto your plate that you're now responsible for. Now you got to keep track of this as kind of stresses you out, right? 
maybe you're not a super organized Cal Newport style productivity guru, right? So you're, you're like, oh, I have something on my plate. The one productivity system you trust is your calendar. You look at your calendar. If you have meetings on your calendar, you go to those meetings. So what you do is you say, great, I will send out a Zoom invite for a standing Zoom meeting. That'll be on my calendar. I know for sure when I get to those days, I will see that and I will go to that meeting. Now I can take this out of my head. I don't have to worry about it. It's meetings as a proxy for productivity. I don't want to have to keep track of this and make progress on my own. So that's what I'm going to do instead. So we end up with way too many meetings. The solution here is actually the same solution for getting rid of the hive mind, which is process-oriented thinking, explicit rules, systems, and guides for each of these processes. When you're being really clear about how do we want to do this type of work, then meetings are going to be a, a part of an intentional plan, which makes those meetings much more structured, much more intentional. So now you're not going to have just meetings for everything that's going on everywhere. You're going to have, oh, for all of this type of work, we have this very structured status meeting that complements this shared task management system where we can all see the status of everything. And it takes 20 minutes and it's twice a week and it replaces six hours of meetings a week, right? So once we get intentional about processes, we deploy synchronous communication to become much more effective, but we're going to have much less of it than in this current ad hoc Wild West type hive mind world where people just throw meetings on the calendar because, quite frankly, they're just not very good otherwise of keeping track of and making progress of projects on their own. Structure alleviates that issue. So we have to think about processes. We have to be intentional about how we want to implement them. As we go through this process of making our days more efficient, is there a risk of losing some of the kind of human connection that is necessary for teams to both be happy and and be productive there's been a lot of research showing that you know that emotional connection and that you know personal sharing your personal life and interacting and engaging as humans is is, is powerful for teams and certainly it's part of why we're all on, on this planet on this earth it, it, it sometimes struck me that you can make everything more efficient except perhaps, the decision to spend time with a person or connecting with a person, demonstrating that they're important to you. Is that something we have to be careful with? Well, I think the word efficient here is getting us in trouble because when we think about a goal of efficiency, we think about doing more things or doing things faster, uh, trying to move really, really quickly and move through things. But if we stand back and think about what we're really proposing here, well, what we're trying to minimize here is unscheduled messages that puts us into a muddled cognitive state. We want to spend more time in a more sequential, sharper cognitive state, which, which actually feels very mm -hmm. different than efficiency, right? So getting rid of unscheduled messaging as a key aspect of how we do collaboration on certain types of processes in itself doesn't make us move faster. It doesn't squeeze other things out of our schedule. It actually slows things down. Now, one of my big arguments I've been making during the pandemic is that sociality is very important. Workplace connection sociality is very important as well. Let's deal with that problem on its own. Okay, what do we want to do about that? What do we, how do we want to design our offices or our workflows? What do we want to do during a period of remote work to try to make sure that we have more social connection? What you don't want to do is blend that into the answer to the question of how do we want to collaborate and organize our work? So I think one of the worst explanations for the hyperactive hive mind, like the reason why we're all just on Slack all the time, we're checking Slack once every four minutes, everyone is in this state of constant cognitive stupor, is that, well, there's this side effect of that that you can have these sort of informal conversations with people. Look, you'd be much better off having every 90 minutes, taking 30 minutes where all you do is sit on Slack and drink champagne and talk to people. Mm -hmm. uh, you would still be better off than trying to actually just do hyperactive hive mind all day long. So I say treat the issue of sociality as a separate problem to solve directly and effectively and treat mm -hmm. the question of what's the best way to collaborate to get things done. Treat that as a separate question. 
optimize your answer to both of those. Don't blend them together. Yep, I know. I think it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that's, that was sort of killed with the with the rise of of email was the phone call. <laughs> you know, I certainly spent a decade of my life where I just kind of, you know, stopped talking on the phone nearly as much as I had previously. And to some degree, I think a lot of people forgot how to talk on the phone. And I've been through this process of kind of intentionally telling myself, Rufus, pick up the phone and and call this person. Because it, it, though, though there can be this kind of like initial discomfort you push through, it often is just more enjoyable and you, uh, you know, and, and we, we just had a recent episode with John Calapinto talking, he talked about the human voice as molecular lasagna because there are so many layers of meaning that are delivered through voice. Well, we're, we are not good at pure linguistic communication, right? Just words, be them on paper or on a screen, is an incredibly impoverished form of communication. It's very difficult and takes a lot of work to even come close to approximating the full sort of social-emotional context of the spoken speech. This is why, if you look back at the great letter writers of past eras, their letters are long, and they spin the page. We think of it as flowery language when we go back and look at, you know, John Adams writing to Thomas Jefferson or something like mm-hmm, this. Like, what's, mm-hmm. what's all this weird flowery language? It's like, no, it's really hard to try to capture with words emotional context. Guess when mm-hmm. it's easy, when I'm just talking to you in person. Yeah. From a pure information theory standpoint, there is orders of magnitude more bits of information being conveyed with the spoken voice as compared to words on a page. So I think you're absolutely right. We we lose a lot. And it's why, by the way, I'm such a big believer in office hours is because one of the things that holds us back from phone conversations is just the overhead of scheduling them. That's why office hours are so great, right? Because you can just be like, yeah, we should just talk about this on the phone. Grab me at my next office hours. Let's just chat about this. I'll come to your next office hours. You take out the overhead of setting up synchronous analog communication. Now it's much, much easier to deploy. And I think you're absolutely right. We should be doing a lot more of it. Well, in, in, in closing, Cal, I, I'm thinking of your comment about what we're going to do, what, what the consequences will be of a potential you know, 5x or more increase in productivity from improvements in workflows and communication efficiency. Hopefully, it will enable us to aerate our lives with more creative projects, more time for people we love. I, I love this observation Nir Eyal made in, in Indistractable that your calendaring system is your values. You know, if you say that you're someone who, who who values their friends and family, well, that's only true if it's reflected in how you spend your time. Yeah, I love that. With this improved this this reduction of this unnecessary overhead, we can we can actually get our time allocation back better aligned with the things we ultimately care about. And I think that's ultimately a goal that we can all be excited about. Well, thank you, Cal, for taking time out of your writing of mathematical proofs and teaching and time blocking to be with us today. Such an interesting conversation. Well, no, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Would you like to hear two more ideas from a world without email? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Cal's BookBite, which includes not three, but five big ideas. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Special thanks to Cal Newport. His book, A World Without Email, is available wherever books are sold, including our email-free Next Big Idea app. And special thank you to my old friend, Alex Fowler, who, unlike me, is so organized, he saved our first email exchanges that I read from at the top of the show. Our executive producers are Kayla Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. 
theme music by Costa Galanopoulos, sound design by Emma Erdbrink. I'm your host, 71672.1070 at CopySurf.com. See you next week.